Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today I'm talking with Norman Brannon of Texas A Reason, Antimatter Zine, New End Original, Shelter, 108, and so many others. I could keep that list going on forever. Today on the pod we talked about the 2016 album Stage 4 by the band Touche Amore. We talked a lot about grief, hardcore, queer identity, and a favorite and constant topic of mine, growing up religious. I honestly love talking with Norman, a big fan of so many of his projects, and so really don't want to hold you up any longer. So let's get to the chat. vegan or do you simply enjoy good food delivered straight to your door then you should probably check out nourish nourish offers culturally diverse gluten-free organic vegan food for meal delivery and catering all while enriching their community employees and our planet if you're in charlotte north carolina you can find them at nourishcharlotte.com if you're in the new york area check out nourishdelivered.nyc nourish yourself you deserve it really hard to kind of just figure out like where to start with you because there's so many angles that you know I could talk about you know I feel like for me obviously it'd be like Texas the reason but I could be like you know Resurrection, Fountainhead, 108, Shelter, New End Original and you know Antimatter Zine um, but actually today we're talking about Touche Amore stage <laughs> four um, not a record you played on but a record that you love so what was the, like, how did you go about hearing the record or was it just organic when it came out? Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm pretty sure that I, I heard it after it came out, um, like the week or, or so. At the time I was um, really close and working with Jeff Frickley from Thursday. And Jeff has a really you know strong relationship with Jeremy uh, from Touche Amore. You know, they're really, really close. Um, at that time, I would say I was um, only marginally interested in Touche. I thought that they were like, you know, a good band um, as far as good bands go. But when I heard that record, it was just an immediate, um, there was just an immediate sort of like focus, deep listening that I don't get on every record that I listen to by any stretch. Usually when I listen to a record the first time, it's sort of just on while I'm doing something else. And I'll stop every now and then when something really piques my interest. But for some reason, you know, and I knew a little bit about what the record was about, but the, there was just immediate deep listening to it. And by the end of the first time I'd listened to it, I was completely just, um, I felt changed, which is kind of crazy because that doesn't happen much less with hardcore records these days. I'm you know, I've listened to a lot of hardcore records in my life. And, uh, you know, the last time a hardcore record really changed me, um, I was much, much, much younger. So that was, that was shocking, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, I think the when you mentioned um, wanting to talk about it, um, you know, also, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to think about the other records. Um, 
that we could have potentially talked about, like, you know, block party and um, I'm blanking on the other one. What, take that. Take that. Yeah. Yes. And I was, you know, re- it was actually like really hard to kind of figure out uh, which one to pick. Like uh, block party, I feel like was like so around, like when it was around, like it was a huge thing. And it was almost like with them, it was like, will I be able to like, think about it outside of the time that it was and then take that I didn't really have any way in except you know I realized it was like Robbie Williams but you know but but, he wasn't even on that record okay so yeah yeah. I mean the Block Party record that I had mentioned was the one that sort of bombed right it was their follow-up to Silent Alarm which was the big hit and then they put out this record for some reason people didn't like it and I thought it was amazing um it's kind of the only record of theirs that I still listen to and so for me there was there was entrance for that I think because it was also the record where um where sort of queerness entered the block party lexicon and it was subtle but I I sort of really picked up on it and um and appreciated it and kind of still think that it's you know an amazing piece of art um Take That, I think, is sort of more interesting because they're a band that I'm always talking about online and social media, and I think people still don't understand why it is that I'm obsessed with an ex-boy band um, that, you know, plays music that you could arguably say is adult contemporary. Um, (laughs) I have a lot of reasons for that, um, mostly because I love a good reinvention story, and nobody reinvented themselves harder than that band. So there's definitely something that I feel I think a kinship with there. Yeah. The two the Tuesday record though, the reason why that one came to mind um, is because the entire basis of the record is something that is completely foreign to me. Like it's a completely uh, it's pra- it should it could be in a different language to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and this is what I said to Jeff, actually, after listening to it for the first time, I said to him, the reason that I think I'm so affected by it is that I don't have a relationship with my mother. I don't, I never did really. Like, I mean, I lived with her, but we didn't have a relationship. Um, I never felt love for her, if I'm being real. Yeah. Um, and I just, these feelings that Jeremy has for his mother are just like, you i feel like an alien that just got dropped on the planet yeah listening to them <laughs> i that's that's really interesting um actually i was kind of i think i had assumed that maybe somewhat of a similar thing had happened in your life you know i mean everyone experiences that kind of grief um so i thought like maybe that was like your connection with like your mother or just some loved one um but kind of like the second part of that when I guess to kind of back it up, here's my tangent within a tangent. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I really like Touche Amore. Like I have the first record and I remember getting it like when it came out like so many years ago um, and, you know, checked out all the splits they did. And just at some point, just life gets in the way and I didn't listen to every Touche Amore record. Like, and um so I had never listened to that record, but it's like, it's this weird thing that when you t- 
told me to check it out, it was like right when my grandmother had passed. And like, I didn't have like, you know, we saw each other like a couple of times a year, but it always felt like kind of like an old friend. Like when you see your grandparent of that time, it was like, so it was like, it was the time for me to hear it, but also like, um, you know, <laughs> didn't expect all those emotions. I, I too knew what that record was about, but it kind of like, actually, I feel like the record helped me kind of process some of it um, with it, you know, but th- what's interesting you saying like, you didn't have that kind of relationship with your mother is I too don't really have that kind of relationship with my mother. I never lived with my mother. Like she struggled with going in and out of jail and being addicted to uh, everything, you know? And so, um, and I talk to her more now and I I started talking to her when I turned like 18. Um, but we'll go like months without really talking. Um, so to your point, I could understand that outside of my, my grandmother and maybe my dad. Um, I don't, I, I don't feel like I'd be able to process it. Even like if my dad were to pass away and even when my grandmother passed away, I still don't feel like I would think about the relationship in the way that Jeremy did with his, his mother. You know? Right. It's, um, and it's, I mean, so, okay. So, when I was in college, my, I did my undergraduate degree in English and adolescent education. And one of the things that I used to talk about in my different papers and presentations is that when you're teaching English to adolescents, that the literature that you use uh, in the classroom should be either or a window or a mirror into their lives. And I look at the music the same way. I think a lot of us use music predominantly as a mirror. It's, it's a sort of like, oh, this person's saying what I believe. Yeah. Or this person's angry what I'm angry about. Or this person's feeling as sad as I'm feeling. Or, you know, whatever it is that's going on. I think it's, it's sort of like a human tendency to want to connect with people based on your similarities. And so that's where the mirror comes in. Ah, you know, I look like Jeremy Bohm in this album, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure a lot of people used that record in that way. Um, for me, this record was a window. It was looking out into something that I have no access to, something that I will never have access to, and trying to identify what it is about that thing that either I missed completely maybe there's something there that I'm pining for. Maybe it's just that I want to feel that type of connection to a person, um, any person, the way if that connection felt so viscerally present in that record. Um, whatever it is, those are the things that I was sort of like grasping onto while I was listening to the record. There may have even been a little bit of envy, right? Like this idea of like, oh my God, like, that's what it's like to have a mother. Like, yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like even, I mean, like <laughs> now that we're in COVID it's different. Like, um, like I didn't go to my grandma's funeral, but mainly it was like, I don't know how you navigate that. Like going during COVID times across state lines and everything. But I feel like if I had the relationship that like Jeremy had with like his mother, 
with my grandmother or anyone in my family, it wouldn't be like a question to even like go to their funeral. But so it's right. like, it's weird that, you know, kind of using the, you know, the kind of mirror or the window, it's like I simultaneously feel both. Like it's like, I, it's almost like I'm more emotional because I feel like I'm always looking in. And that's like some of the thing with like my grandmother, almost like anyone in my family or friends, you know, kind of friend group that passes away where I'm always like, I wish I could feel like what this, this person's like feeling with it. Like, yeah, I, I bothers my, I feel like uh, when situations like this kind of come around, like I always have this like moment with my wife where there's like this like line from like Terminator two. Uh, and he's like, it's going to be it's deep. Like, I now know why you cry, <laughs> but it's something I could never do. Like, and it's like a constant <laughs> like thing. And I just think about it whenever there's like an emotional moment and I'm just like kind of stoic, you know, <laughs> but you know, I, I, and I think that's like kind of different than like the feeling of it, but I don't know if you have that where it's like, you feel like you even like kind of looking into someone's like feelings on any specific moment. I mean, I feel like I have that tendency regardless of what you're talking about. I, I feel like I'm sort of a radical empath. Like I, I kind of, um, I really take on the emotions and vibes of the people that I'm around. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think I probably stay home a lot. Uh, even before COVID, uh, you know, it, it makes social situations intense for me. I, I can kind of just, um, if somebody's feeling bad, I internalize a lot of it um, and, and vice versa. Um, it's sort of that way, listening to the record, but, you know, so I didn't become friends with Jeremy, I think until afterwards, like, um, and I've never actually even, I would say talk to him really in depth about it. He sort of knows a little bit about how I feel about it. Um, but mostly because I didn't want to necessarily just keep bringing it up. I, it, it must be so bizarre to me to have this piece of art like this, this really like gigantic work about this experience because it almost feels like traumatic to have to just sort of like constantly live in that experience. And so I almost just don't want to talk to Jeremy about it because I don't want to re-traumatize anybody. Um, and then at the same time, it brings out a lot of my, um, like the items of, of, of sort of business that are not closed in my mind that I need closure on, right? Um, in between this record coming out and now, I found out that my mom died. Um, and my dad for that matter. Um, I didn't, I haven't spoken to either of them since 2004, I think it was. Um, and in 2004, that was basically when uh, we sort of like laid it all out on the table. I, uh, I almost died in 2003. I had a, I was hit by a tow truck while I was crossing the street I was in the hospital for like two months. I had a traumatic brain injury, broken bones, all these things, cranial bleeding. It was like a real mess. And uh, when you're in bed for two months, you have a lot of time to sort of just think about life <laughs> and think about your relationships and sort of like the things that you feel good about and 
the things you can do without. And during that period of time, I realized that my relationship with my family was completely bullshit. Uh, you know, they would call me, we would tell each other pleasantries, um, small talk. They never knew anything about my life. I never knew anything about theirs. We never shared anything intimate. We didn't have an intimate relationship. And it was pointless. It was actually not only pointless, but it was, it was hurtful. Every time the phone rang and it came from that number, I was just like, oh, fuck. Like, I didn't want to pick it up. Um, and so after I got better and could walk again and <laughs> could think again, um, I, had, I had it out and I had this real conversation with my mom. And it was the first time I sort of was able to uh, confront her about the years of violent physical abuse that uh, she sort of subjected me to. And um, it was the first time I came out to her. I'd never come out. I was 30 or 31, I think, that year. Um, and, you know, all these things, I just, we just, I laid it all out. And I basically, at the end of the conversation, said to her that, um, look, I've never felt unconditional love from you, ever. Um, we're adults now though, and I'm willing to put the past behind us. So if you're willing to get into a relationship with me, that's based on unconditional love, um, I'm willing to try. So we should do that. But if you're not willing to do that, don't call me back. And she never called me back. So that was, that. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, that was a little difficult because there were definitely elements there that I felt were just like, Ooh. Like, I didn't feel bad in the sense of like, that I felt abandoned or rejected. Um, I mean, there were obviously were elements of that. You're gonna feel that no matter what your age is. I felt more sorry for her that, it, that this was really all like a problem, um, that unconditional love was a problem. I'm, you know, it's kind of like, wow, that's, that's deep. But um, anyway, at that point I changed my number, I changed my name. <laughs> I, you know, I, I did a, you know, I moved, <laughs> I was kind of like, good, goodbye. And, uh, and then two years ago or three years ago, I think my curiosity sort of started getting in the, getting into the way of my life a little bit. And I started wondering whether or not they were alive because my parents were old when they had me. I think like my mom was like 40 already when she had me. So, um, so I went on Google and I found a website that apparently takes pictures of everyone's tombstones uh, and puts, you know, their names and birth dates and all that stuff. And, and I found my mom's tombstone and my dad's tombstone. They died within, I think, two years of each other. And, uh, and I was like, wow, they really went to the death without saying goodbye. Holy shit. That's, that's fucking hardcore. Like, I mean, that was a lot to process. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because like, it's one thing, like if you're alive and pissed, it's another thing if like, you know, I, neither of them I'm sure died out of nowhere. Like it's not like they got hit by a car or something. You know what I mean? Like they're old. I'm sure they knew it was coming. If they wanted to reach out, they could have reached out and they didn't. Yeah. Especially with like a two year gap. It's like, it's like, right. It feels like, like in the least... two years, it's like you could take the time and be like, Oh, and by the way, 
your mother. Like one of them. Yeah, yeah exactly. The living one could have reached out, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it definitely felt um, weird. And I'm, I'm still not fully um, operating on a level of closure with that. But um, at the same time, I didn't grieve. I didn't cry. I didn't feel sad. I mean, I stared at the tombstones for a little while, kind of going, hmm. You know, like it was, it was more of like a, a strange, like uh, living outside of my body moment, like where I was like trying to figure out what my relationship to this person was. Um, but yeah, there was no grief. There was no sense of like missing you or missing out or even if only we could have or what could have been. I sort of felt like she made her decision and she seemed cool with that. So I guess I'm cool with that. And that was that. Yeah. So, so coming from that experience, I think it made stage four even more insane of an album and made me feel like more of a, an alien <laughs> yeah. listening to it because I don't, um, I don't relate to it at all. And yet it touches something deeply inside yeah i yeah i don't feel like there's if i were to essentially write my own trauma record from like a family member dying i mean i think every it's it's silly because like i think everyone's trauma record would be from a different perspective but um like mine wouldn't be the same at all you know <laughs> like it, you know um yeah it's, it's just simply that like <laughs> i don't even have a good tangent uh, to go on that, like my relationship with my dad will end up being more like, you know, it's like three weeks at a time, just kind of the same text, like, sorry, we don't talk more or something, you know, but right. it's like, it's not even like technically bad, like, you know, be like, bought a new Jeep today, and then, you know, a month will pass, and then it's like, how are you? Uh, right. you know and so like, <laughs> it's like, it's not, you know, and so I kind of like feel bad, almost like, putting it out and then I'm like oh wow yours sounds yours sounds worse uh you know, but uh you know but yeah that's strange though I feel like I can't even comprehend that and I feel like I don't have like the best relationship with my parents but just like even the kind of general thing like it feels like even I would probably tell my neighbors if like you know, my wife passed away or something, you know, like they would right. probably want to know, you know, like, right. Like, and it's like, <laughs> some of them, I don't know their last name, but yeah. But right. so that's strange where it's just like, a, it's like, even if you're just default setting parent, you know, um, it's like to not, and, you know, not to, uh, to make you go too deep into it, but I mean, you were, you kind of just were raised with them and they stayed together throughout mm -hmm. your whole life yeah uh, and then so it's like but I, I wonder how much of that and I don't think that's because you said you came out later and sometimes I just think about that like in kind of generationally um like and it's a, as a straight man like it's it's like kind of hard for me to like comprehend um you know or just act like I know you know is what I'm saying like but it's it's weird when I it's like when I see younger kids like and it's it's good that we're at this place, but I feel like younger kids it's like they're not as afraid to like come out obviously uh, in a lot of cases I think it sort of depends i mean yeah. i you know the fact is that 
still over half of all homeless teens in America are True. LGBT. So somebody's kicking them out. I'm, I'm um, just seeing Twitter, <laughs> I guess. But. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, yes, there have been certain advancements, but I mean, it's also difficult. Like I have a godchild that came out as trans and wow, I didn't know. Like I was, I, there was, there was a point where I thought maybe they were gay, like, and I thought, oh, that would be cool. But, um, but I was, yeah, I had no idea. And, and it gave me a little bit of empathy for any parent, because I think even, you know, parents that love their kid, no matter what, and they're pro gay and, you know, whatever it is, it's still a transition. And it's still something where you have to think about a person differently where the information that you have about a person is no longer the same or it's changed in some sort of crucial, crucial way. And I'm not one of those people who believes that being gay is just one part of your life. In my world and in my experience, being gay has been the filter through which I experience everything and the filter through which I express everything. It, there's no, it's not just a part of, you know, a tiny part of my life. Like when I was a little kid and I wanted to be Wonder Woman, I knew that in the back of my head, I can't do that because I'm a boy and they'll think I'm gay. You know, uh, when I was growing up and when I got into the hardcore scene as a young kid, like I went to my first show when I was like 12. And, you know, I remember thinking like there were certain mannerisms that I couldn't do because I didn't want people to think I was gay. Uh, there were certain ways of speaking that I didn't want to speak because I didn't want people to think I was gay. I filtered everything through the closet and that's harmful. Um, I think for yourself and that harm that you create to yourself, um, expresses itself in other ways, right? Like then I think I became, um, a knucklehead for a while. Um, because I thought like, you know, I'm going to be a skinhead and that way no one will think I'm gay. Right. And I'm going to get into fights and I'm going to be, you know, a fucking street kid or whatever. And, you know, thankfully that was short lived. And I started to realize that there were other ways to express myself creatively or through writing or, you know, but even then it was still micromanaging my, my identity to appease other people. You can't do that for like, a large part of your life without that having, or without that affecting almost every single aspect of your life. And it doesn't go away as you get older. As you get older, you just start to understand more um, what you used to do. And hopefully you're kind to yourself and you forgive yourself for beating yourself up and for trying to be something you're not. But when you live, you know, so many years of your life, uh, concealing something that is so basic a part of your identity kit um it's it's brutal it's traumatic yeah. and and so you know that's something that i think you know what i didn't say about my parents uh is that they're pentecostal they're born again christians my mother was like she used to speak in tongues at church and like you know it was a very you know, we went to see Jimmy Swaggart at Madison Square Garden and they were really into the whole televangelist world and, you know, the 80s and, and the sort of Jerry Falwell moral majority. My dad voted for Reagan. 
as soon as he became a citizen, you know? <laughs> um, my mouth you know. is just like a gate because like I was also raised Pentecostal. Um, and actually it's funny cause this is like the second time on any of these interviews where that has kind of come up. Um, but also <laughs> I like recently did an interview with uh, this comedian, Mike Kaplan, and it mm-hmm. was all about being raised Pentecostal. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it's like, there was a, piece i feel like i was trying to get like why parents would be this way and then when you put that piece of the puzzle on i was like oh right like, that's how they would be. <laughs> like it's, i feel like it's like in that piece it's like and i i, t- I talked to, i've talked about this before but not to you obviously but um it's it feels like um it's kind of easier for me but i feel like there was like a kind of piece of the puzzle where it's like you almost start like creating like a dark version of yourself because you're, you're feeling like you're doing something like against the church. And, but it's like right. the dark version of yourself for me was just like, and I've joked about this before. It could have just been like smoking cigarettes or something, you know, for me, right. but, it, but it's sort of like, because it's more taboo than what it would be. I, I assume in like the normal world, it like creates more of a fracture or at least it did for me. And I guess when you, I feel like when you add your identity as, you know, a gay man that, you know, I guess you were hiding from your parents, um, you know, I'm not sure like what's your relationship or if they knew, I don't know if they knew before you like came out to them. I don't know if they had any. I mean, I was a sensitive boy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know that, I don't know that like, I don't know that they didn't know, but you know, I will also say that my, my family was amazing at denial and amazing at keeping secrets. Yeah. And there were secrets that, you know, like I didn't even find out until after they died. So, um, you know, like I don't, so I don't talk to any of my family. I have two brothers too. And I've, I've, I don't talk to any of my step siblings really. Um, only did recently because my dad my dad actually got COVID from going to church oh wow they were still doing oh my god (laughs) it's actually oh well it's like to clarify and you'll probably know what this means it's like I'll tell people I was raised Pentecostal but I was raised apostolic and Mm. they were generally a lot of Pentecostal churches and apostolic are basically the same thing but like the church I went to almost like proud where they were proud that they were like more strict than Pentecostal yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was like the women didn't cut their hair. They didn't wear, or, you know, they only wore dresses, no makeup, no, uh, you didn't, a lot of people didn't have like TVs in their house and like. It was more cult like. Like, I feel like the average Pentecostal, especially the Spanish Pentecostal church, which I think is like something that is, um, it's, it's, it's almost its own flavor. Uh, but the Spanish Pentecostal church was very into they were just into judging people at the yes. end of the day <laughs> the standards. because my mo- my mother had her own bullshit <laughs> yeah. but boy was she the most righteous person in the room. and you know and my dad so you know the one thing that i was uh that i'm sort of working through right now i'm actually kind of working on a book that deals with um identity mostly through a queer lens, but sort of talking about my ethnic identity as well as a way to sort of view queerness. Um, so one thing that I found out a couple years ago, um, I took an ancestry.com uh, DNA test 
And the reason why I did that was because when I was much younger, um, you know, like when you're a kid and you ask your parents, like, where are we from? Like, you know, it's like, maybe it's a school project. Like I'm, you know, German, Irish, Argentinian or something, you know, whatever it is. Like, um, I, so maybe it was for a school thing. Maybe I was just curious and I was just like, so where are we from, from? Like, I know that my mom uh, was born in Colombia and my dad was born in Chile. Um, but is that, where's our family from? Like, what is, what is our ethnicity? And so my mom, she was, she was very like, okay, well, I was born in Colombia, but your grandparents are Spanish and Portuguese. So, you know, technically we're Iberian, like that's, you know, Spanish and Portugal, that's Spain and Portugal is where your family's from on my side. So great. Okay, cool. So my dad, where are we from on your side? And he would say, I was born in Santiago. And I'd be like, okay, but where's your family from? I was born in Santiago. Like he wouldn't go any further than saying that. And I'd ask my mom and she was like, he's never told me, I have no idea. And I was just like, okay, like, great. So I didn't really know. I'd never, I've never been to Chile. I've still never been to Chile. Um, I didn't know what that meant. I was like, so are we just like millionth generation Chilean? Like, is that a thing? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, so I decided to take this DNA test to see what the deal was. And, uh, you know, my mom's side came back exactly what she said, Spanish, Portuguese. My dad's side, uh, Native American. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why wouldn't he just say that? Like, if you were indigenous Chilean, you know, I don't, you know, like what, I don't even know what that means. Like, what does that mean? Like, so I started researching that a little bit and um, I've come down to the conclusion that it just by the dates uh, of things and sort of like the statistics, 80% of indigenous Chileans belong to a group called Mapuche. And I kind of feel like, okay, so eight out of 10, I have Mapuche blood. So that's probably interestingly right. But also at around the time that my dad was born, uh, it was a time of Mapuche military defeat through the Chilean government. And I could potentially see there being a situation where the Mapuches who uh, fled and went to Santiago could have potentially gone into the closet, um, you know, for the sake of saving themselves from further persecution. Um, and, and the Mapuches and the Chilean government are still at odds with each other. The Chilean government is still trying to take Mapuche land. It's still um, a conflict. Now we're talking a hundred years ago. And that was still a conflict around the time when my dad would have been born uh, or when his parents would have gone to Santiago. So from a, from a dates standpoint and a statistics standpoint, that's the best explanation that I can come up with for why my dad was in the closet indigenous his entire life. Um, but it also sort of makes me a little bit almost, again, empathetic with my dad, thinking that he had also this experience of being in the closet um, for different reasons that maybe I'll never know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, um, I guess like what kind of led them to the church or is it just um, almost like the same thing? Like we just were. I have no, well, so they were both Catholic and okay. when they came to this country, um, my, 
speculation, honestly, is that the Catholic Church, um, I think they equated the Catholic Church very much with their homelands. And when they came to America, they were very sort of obsessed with becoming American. Okay. And I think that for whatever reason, the Pentecostal Church and all the televangelists, the people on TV, they um, read more as American. Um, and they very much equated religion with politics in a lot of ways. It's one of the reasons I think my dad was Republican, why they, um, you know, they, they saw that version of Christianity on TV as being uniquely American, the born again version. So yeah. that was what they wanted to be. Um, and, you know, that was what it was in my, in my house. Like I wasn't allowed to speak Spanish. They would speak to me in Spanish. I spoke to them in English. And, you know, their whole thing, which now as somebody who has a master's degree that focused on linguistics, I know is total bullshit. <laughs> they had this idea that, um, that if I, if I learned how to speak English while speaking Spanish, because I spoke Spanish fluently as a child up until the age of five, um, they were worried that I would start speaking English like them. Oh, okay. That they didn't realize that you can that children especially can learn multiple languages at the same time and learn them fluently and be native in them. So I could have this like native command of Spanish, which I do from a level of, I understand Spanish, I read Spanish, um, you know, I can watch Spanish movies, you know, all these things. But like, when I speak it, I have to think. It doesn't just flow off the way English does. Yeah, well, I think well, interesting thing too, like um, you were kind of saying like the kind of using the filter analogy, like you feel like everything's kind of filtered. Like it's, but if, if I think about it and um, I'm like, it's like you have a few filters that you're kind of putting these things through. It's like, you know, probably like your experience with like the faith that, and then your, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, I guess, you know chilean and you know kind of like the way you were raised in that that way and then also like hardcore you know and like a queer identity as well like almost like there's like three or four filters you know that where it kind of goes out into the world but it's 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 interesting because i've been thinking about this a lot writing the book and thinking about how you know yes everyone has a ton of filters right the the term that's so hot intersectionality we all have intersectionality and, um, but I truly, at least for me, this is just me talking. I feel like queerness is the first filter. It's, okay. it's the first and the last filter. It's mm -hmm. sort of like, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of stuff that happens in between, but for some reason that one feels just the most present um, in the way I think about the world. And, you know, largely because it's like, what can you do when you're like, I mean, think about it. Okay, we're talking about like the Pentecostal filter. Like, so from as early an age as I can remember, because I knew I was gay as a child. Like, you know, before I even knew what the word gay was, I knew. Um, I knew who I was looking at at the JCPenney catalog, right? Like I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't look at the bra section. I, you know, I was seven years old and I still knew. Um, so, when you know that that young and then you're also told that young that people like you are sinners and perverts and pedophiles for that matter <laughs> um 
what does that do to your sense of self? That, you know, that's why I have, I take such a, a real sort of problem with people who say like being gay is only one part of you. Like when you're seven years old and you're told you're a pervert, that's all of you. Cause what yeah. the fuck else are you when you're seven years old? <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm a kid who likes cartoons. That's not, you know, like, you know, you have a very deep sense of self that exists. Um, and before you can really start to understand, like I didn't even have a strong sense of ethnic identity at that point because my parents were so intent on making me American. Okay. As yeah, an ethnicity, you know, so I couldn't even draw back on like, you know, my Latino ethnicity because I didn't have one. They didn't want me to have one. As far as they were concerned, we were white. Like that was sort of like how they were sort of acting. <laughs> you know, my dad would say things sometimes where I'd be like, dad, you know, we're not white, right? Like I would actually say that <laughs> because I think he confused um, Americanness with whiteness. And I think like when he became an American citizen, he developed this sense of entitlement that I think um, maybe he didn't realize wasn't fully open to him. Yeah, I mean, I've, I feel like I've seen that with other people that, you know, came to this country. Like, it's like, if when they become, like, I guess, patriotic is how I'll put it, it's, like, really full on, you know? Like, it's, um, like, a kind of acquaintance I know, like, his parents were from uh, Colombia, and, like, he's becoming, like, he's becoming, like, more and more right wing, like, um, but it, it's it's, like, I can't tell him otherwise that's like his experience you know I, I would hope it doesn't lead someone to Trump but in a way I'm like it's like it's just a different thing I, I don't even know where I'm getting but it's it's like that experience with it it's like becomes more of an ownership with them that they've earned you know yeah so it's like, and I it, it's it's not just my dad I realized that too like I so I taught for five years at Brooklyn College and I remember I was teaching a uh this was like a it was like one of those composition two classes where basically people are learning how to write argumentative, long form argumentative papers. And so I'm teaching research and I'm teaching sort of like uh, how to create an argument. And this one kid comes in with this paper, a draft, and I read it and I was just like, okay, we had a talk. Like, let's, let's go to my office, you know, let's, let's have a conversation. So we sit down and talk and, He's a kid, he's Latino, and the entire paper was like an anti-immigration paper. And it was like, and this was before Trump. <laughs> this is like, you know, um, I would say 70% of his sources were from the Heritage Foundation, which is a, you know, renowned conservative think tank that is very anti-immigration. They're a political organization by nature. They have an agenda. It's not an unbiased source. Uh, in order to create an argument on. So that was the first thing I wanted to say to him. It's just like, you can't, number one, using one place for 70% of your sources is not legit. Number two, that place is, is problematic. Here's why. And I was like, but number three, and I, I, I always remember his face when I said this. I said, your dad is an immigrant, isn't he? <laughs> and he just looked at me like, yeah. And I was like, and a lot of these ideas you got from him, isn't that right? <laughs> he was like, well, yeah. And I was like, because your dad probably became a citizen 
And he was like, yes. You know, it was really funny because I was just sitting there like, your dad is my dad. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we have the same dad. My dad also believed that all the other immigrants were lazy and worthless and, you know, not, they're not real Americans like him, you know, like they came here illegally and like all this stuff. My dad had a real chip on his shoulder about being the guy who came in, you know, I came in legally, I came, you know, I became an American citizen, I renounced my Chilean citizenship, you know, like, this was a thing to him, it was a point of pride, it became his identity. You know, he didn't identify as anything else but American. The second he took those vows, or that oath to become an American citizen, that was the only thing he was. He would never tell anyone he was Chilean, he'd never say, I'm Chilean American, he wouldn't say I'm Latino, I'm an American, period. And he looked down on other immigrants. Uh, he gave them the same sort of like whack, no benefit of the doubt that you get from the Republican Party in 2020. And I don't know where that comes from. Well, I, I, I mean, really I don't, don't know where it comes from, but I feel like it's like, it's almost like a thing. It's like they went through the door and then they closed the door and locked it. You know, it's like, or they want to, <laughs> they want to. Yeah. You no, know, it's like, it's like, I did it. I did it the right way. Everybody after me is just like, it's a weird thing, but you know, I feel like it's like, you know, it's almost like I, I don't think empathize is like the right way to put it, but where it's like, I can't, I feel like in some way I'm like, I can't take that away from them if that's their experience with it. But I wish that they would understand that like their experience is just like a fraction of the experience of like an immigrant. But that's also like from me. But what I wanted him, (laughs) what I wanted my dad to sort of understand and what he, I don't know that he ever did, to be honest, was like, you know, I was never like, there's a part in the book that I talk about where I, I talk about the time I told my dad how, um, so we grew up in Queens and when I was growing up, up until we left Queens for, uh, my parents moved to the suburbs in the late eighties to Long Island. Up until that point, I would say the majority of my friends were black and Latino and I had a handful of white friends and it was fine. Um, but generally speaking, I was around other people of color. And then they moved to Long Island and they moved to a town called Massapequa. And in 1988 or whenever it was, I think it was 88, there were no people of color in Massapequa, period. I was the brownest thing to hit that school ever. And I remember walking into school and just being like, oh my God, what am I walking into? Like feeling so immediately like everyone's staring at me. I'm different. You know, my first day of school, someone called me a nigger and I punched him in the face, (laughs) you know, and, um, and I was called lots of things. I was called a spick. I was called a wetback. I was, you know, all these different things. Um, You know, not by everybody, but certainly there was a, a, a good amount of people there who saw my presence as a problem and saw my ethnicity as a problem and saw my immigrant parents as a problem. My father sort of like never really experienced that because even though we lived on Long Island, he continued to work in Manhattan. And so he just never really experienced that. So I remember having this conversation with him where I was sort of sharing these things with him. And he asked me literally, he's like, don't they know you're American? (laughs) And I was just like, 
dad. <laughs> I was like, you don't get it. <laughs> like, we're American, yes. But when we walk through the door, we're brown. You know what I mean? Like, at the end of the day, the way you're perceived is who you are in this country. Yes. And so, you know, if I'm perceived as Latino, that's how I get treated. If I'm perceived as black, that's how I get treated. You know, it's sort of like when Republicans always used to talk about Obama and they would say things like, well, he's half white. What does he know? You know, <laughs> and I was just like, what a crazy thing to say. Because at the end of the day, when Obama walks into the room, he's a black man. That's yeah. how he's perceived. That is how he's going to be treated. And no amount of whiteness is going to change that. That doesn't change his experience. And so, you know, I think that as I grew up and, and became more comfortable in myself as well, and I started to, you know, lose the, uh, the vestiges of the closet that didn't allow me to be more feminine or sort of talk the way I want to talk or, or say the things I want to say or act the way I want to act or dance or be into what I'm into. Like, um, now I, I, I do think that pe I can walk into a room and people perceive me as gay and I'm good with that. Cool. Perceive me as you want. Like, um, but that perception is important. And no, when I walk into the room, no one says he is American. So that's not a gateway to freedom. And, and yeah. my dad never really sort of got grasped that. So, you know, I, I appreciate sort of the, the American dream. I appreciate, you know, <laughs> uh, his intentions and his hopes and dreams for, for being here. But, um, you know, clearly we weren't, you know, this isn't that country. That's yeah, I feel like I, it's like I try and like almost like get in someone's shoes and think about like where they came from, but I, I can never fully like completely like grasp that way of just like be seeing kind of one vision, you know, just like I'm American, you know, like your father did. Like it's like I can't fully get there. It's like I have a little bit of empathy for it, um, but I can't. One thing I wanted to kind of mention though, like have you read Bob Mould's book? Mm, I have it but I never read it. <laughs> oh, it, it does like a, I mean, I, I feel like he's like another person that, um, you know, kind of publicly came, like came out a little later in life. So it goes into some about like kind of trying to feel like you're connecting with that side of yourself. Um, I don't know if you, I guess you know, it's in the book and it's, it's you know, right. unique to him, but I feel like a person too that also uh, from the book, um, just doesn't feel like he could like completely connect with that and like kind of did later, you know? Uh, right. So it's, well, like, but you often like, I mean, I think that we often convince ourselves that we can't connect with certain things. I think it's very common for either like people in the closet or sort of like newly out people to say things like, well, I'm not that type of gay because everybody thinks that they're special and everybody thinks that they're this cute individual who, you know, is not like everybody else. Right, but I think freedom for me and sort of like uh, true liberation was understanding, oh no, actually, these are my people. I am a lot like them. <laughs> I've just been trying not to be those things uh, because I'm afraid of what everybody else is gonna think, you know, or I was afraid of giving up my, co my cover. Um, but in reality, the things that we share are profound. And, uh, 
and and that's you know again one of the things in the book that I'm working on that I'm really trying to get at is is the point that I think at this stage in my life I really look at other queer people as family um, in the way that I would look at other people of my ethnic heritage in in you know as in some sort of like familial type of way or like you know what I mean like that sort of deep connection that people generally put on blood relations or on ethnic relations um, or on family relations or however it is, I, I look at that as the way I, I sort of relate to and understand my relationship with other queer people. Because I think that there's no way that you can grow up with this experience, um, this shared experience and this shared trauma without um, having almost a foundational connection to people who have also experienced that. Do you think growing up in um, hardcore like kind of allowed you to kind of see that you could kind of have almost like a family connection with it that wasn't a blood connection? Yeah, I mean, I, to a certain extent, that's what my entire life is. It's sort of a series of finding families. And like, you know, when I got into hardcore, um, you know, like I said, I was like 12 when I went to my first show. I started maybe like going more often and sort of like really getting into it when I was like 13. Um, and even then I couldn't get into all the shows. So a lot of times I would just like hang out if I got kicked out or whatever it was. Um, but to me, it was really about those relationships. And I was forming a lot of relationships with people who also shared something deep with me, like in the sense that, you know, I was coming from this essentially dysfunctional, broken, fucked up family. Um, nobody I knew, like where I went to school or whatever, had anything like this, or if they did, it was a deep, deep secret. But everybody I knew in the hardcore scene, it was like, you know, that was the joke. And I've, I've said this before, like the joke when I first started coming around was like, I would just start asking people, so like, what fucked you up to get here? Yeah. because it <laughs> because we were all fucked up and you know it was just how that was the only difference um so finding that sort of tribe of people who were fucked up in different ways allowed me to feel better about being fucked up and allowed me to also sort of like develop deep relationships that i needed um at that time in order to survive yeah and i guess this is uh the kind of the callback into touche amore um do you feel like do you feel like you have that connection with like hardcore i mean i guess like i feel like we're calling this a hardcore record but it's sort of like it's more than that like stage four is um but do you i mean I know this came out in 2016 but do you feel like you connect with hardcore like now or in 2016 still in the same way or not in the same way yeah but yes yeah I mean, look, so like mirror window, right? Like when I first got into hardcore, it was a mirror. It was very much like, oh my God, like, yes, everything's fucked up. Fuck the government, fuck Ronald Reagan, fuck my parents, fuck school, fuck it. You know? Like yeah. that was 1980s hardcore, <laughs> you know, and don't do drugs. And, like, and that was like, yeah, okay, cool. I won't do drugs, great. Um, and so like that, that was a mirror to me. Like I felt very much seen on some level. Uh, 
as hardcore sort of developed, you know, and I, when I talk about hardcore, I feel like it's it's really difficult to define it these days, right? Like it's sort of slippery because I feel like I feel like I'm I'm going so broad in my mind with it, like you know, it's I don't know, it's like sometimes people are hardcore kids, but then it's like because I was looking at some of like the Talk House articles you were you had written, and you kind of mentioned like Superchunk, and mm-hmm. it's like I'm oh, Superchunk's not a hardcore band, but Right. I feel like Mac like comes from like a root of that where he could yeah. almost just be like, I'm a hardcore kid. And I've talked to Mac about like, you know, certain hardcore oh, he, seven He knows every fucking knows hardcore everything. record. And like Lou yeah. Barlow. <laughs> like you can just right. talk to Lou Barlow about, you know, Necros or something, you know, but like, right. And so in the most broad sense, I think we're probably, you know, kind of <laughs> talking around. So we'll use right. that as like, just a general sense it can almost go into like anything ever but it's almost like it somehow always roots there you know yeah i mean i guess it's like it's it's about <laughs> it's so like cliche it's about the culture right like it's about the culture like it's about you know you can express yourself in a variety of ways in the culture like is texas is the reason a hardcore band like no not by the traditional sense of the word at all but like is it rooted in the culture yeah is that what hardcore kids saw in it all these years and sort of like wanted to appreciate about it? Probably like there was probably a bit of mirror in there. Um, but like, I do feel like hardcore is less mirror for me now and more window. Like mm-hmm. it's very much just sort of like I'm looking into because I, and part of this is because I've aged, right? Like yeah. a, a lot of the records that I'm listening to are written by 20 and 30 somethings. And, you know, even those people, I think, um are experiencing the world differently than i did and so it's interesting to hear those experiences and to find places where i can sort of like grab onto and feel connected um and i still love like a good hardcore. like i love knucklehead hardcore like when it comes to like music the music of it right like i either want like total mosh like i want like mad ball i want incendiary i want you know like that that whole thing or like i love like total thrash like gloss or like you know what i mean they're like los crudos not that they're a band now but you know like that vibe of like just total thrash like those are the two sort of strands of hardcore that i still feel connected to and that i still tend to seek out um Touche, you know, isn't either of those things. Yeah. But I still identify, I still identify this as a hardcore record because I remember listening to it and said, and saying like, if this came out in 1993, they would have been an issue number four of Anti-Matter. You know, like this absolutely is of the culture. Um, and, And I think that's also part of why it exists. I don't really know that a record like this could have truly existed without years and years of hardcore being able to open itself up to itself, like of being able to get to a place where hardcore bands were no longer, um, cause if you think about it, like early hardcore through, you know, even the early nineties was very externalized. It was all about, I'm going to point the finger at you. I'm going to point the finger at you. You suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. Like that was sort of like, I'm stabbed in the back. 
you know, like, or whatever it was. It was like, yeah. you're stabbing me in the back. Fuck you. You know, it was very like finger pointy. Um, and then, you know, the 90s came along. Emo came along. Things like that came along where it was like, now all of a sudden people were turning inwards. I stabbed myself in the back. Yeah. What's wrong with me? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> and it was that level of introspection that was necessary for hardcore to get to another place. Because I don't think hardcore could ex exist if we were still just railing about everyone else. Because, I mean, there's just a certain point where it's just like, just shut up and do something. Then. Like, you know, like if all you care about is what's going on in the world, then, you know, stop complaining about it or figure out what it is that you're doing wrong. And I still feel like there are levels of hardcore that aren't introspective enough. Like we haven't worked out why you go to a hardcore show and it's still 98% white or 80% male. What are we doing that is literally disinviting people from your community? Now you could argue that, well, I don't, what are we supposed to do? Do a fucking outreach program or you know, something like that. And it's like, I don't think people understand the mechanics of inclusivity. Well, we got to go back to our Pentecostal roots and go door to door. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. But it's, but it's, it's uh, what it is. The mechanics of inclusivity basically revolve around how you act in a space, what you say in a space, how you operate, what your ethics are, you know, every, there's, there's so many elements to it that telegraph messages to people who walk in and see it. And when I walk into a room, um, I can read the room and see whether or not I'm welcome here or whether or not my, t my kind belongs here. And for whatever reason, you know, hardcore just hasn't really appealed to people of color on a broad scale. Um, and why is that? Why aren't we getting more introspective about that? You know, we can write all the anti-racist anthems in the world, but ultimately, is it working? Yeah, I don't, sometimes I don't know that it is. I mean, and it's hard because I feel like as I've gotten older, I don't know if it's like an age thing, um, you know, but then I see people that are still around my age, but, and they'll still be at a hardcore show. But I honestly, even as like a straight man, a lot of times, like don't straight white male, like I don't feel comfortable at hardcore shows. So I just don't go to them locally anymore. Do you I mean, think that's because of any your age now. or? Um, I feel like sometimes I feel like, I'm just standing there and I'm like, someone's going to punch me in the head and not even like a pit thing. It's like someone's going to come up behind me and punch me in the head for no reason. Well, okay. But even a pit thing, like that was a thing that was real. And that was a real conversation in the nineties that just died. Right. Like, so when Texas first came out, we had, um, I don't want to say we had a rule, but we sort of had a rule. We weren't into moshing. We weren't into stage diving. We would literally stop playing if people started doing it. And it took a while um, because when we first came out, you know, everybody was just like, yeah, there's a new band on Revelation, sweet. You know, let's fucking dive, let's mosh, let's have some fun. And we would just stop playing <laughs> and just, you know, and that was like, you know, a little bit of a protest. The first time we went to Europe, I remember we would have a person come out on stage. I would, I would walk out on stage before we played with a person who spoke whatever the native language of the country we were in was. 
And I would basically say, thanks for coming out. We want to appreciate everyone who came out to the show and we want everyone to have a good time and we want everyone to feel safe and included. And we want everyone to feel like they can stand wherever the hell they want in order to appreciate the show. So we would really appreciate it if you didn't mosh, if you didn't stage dive, you can dance in place, you can sing along, you can have fun, you can go crazy and do your own thing without impeding on other people's space or making other people feel less safe and kicking other people in the head. And you know, if you can do that and everybody can be exactly where they wanna be while we're playing, that would be amazing, thank you. And I will tell you, after every time we did that, the crowd would be like, yeah, because there was this like feeling at that time of like, holy shit, yes, like, Maybe I'm a, I'm a, I'm a small man <laughs> who wants to stand up front. Maybe I'm a girl who doesn't feel safe, you know, standing in certain places in the club. Maybe I'm queer and like, you know, I'm just going to stand here where I'm like, you know, people won't notice me. You know what I mean? There was a sense of real inclusion that we wanted to have. And in order to do that, we needed to break some tradition. And that was what we did throughout the, the history of our band um, until it became known you don't mosh at a Texas show. Yeah, and I feel like that was kind of a conversation around that time, at least from like reading things. Uh, you know, there started to kind of be those, I mean, I guess that's almost like an extension of when you think about like Fugazi or like Embrace and whatnot, like almost like your reaction to probably listening to like Revolution Summer bands yeah. Um, which is like, oh, I mean, always... we absolutely, it, we, you know, we picked up that torch from Fugazi for yeah. sure. Like they, they were probably a little less didactic about it. And, and they, I don't remember, I mean, I've saw Fugazi a million times, but I never, I don't remember them ever stopping playing if it happened, but they would usually say something after the song. Um, but, but some of the best shows of my life were Fugazi shows. So I think that we were realizing you can have fun at a show without elbowing someone in the face or without threatening someone's physical safety. <laughs> and I'm sure that there are people who are probably like, Texas is the reason, you bunch of fags, like, you know, whatever it was. I'm sure that's what was going on on some level. Um, but, you know, but, or like we got, res I think we got respected for it too because people were just doing it. Like I, I, I remember this the other day I was talking about, we played a show in Vermont once with Madball. And uh, I remember we were hanging out at the merch table with a couple of guys in Madball. And I was like, yo, I was like, so do you guys like, what do you think of my band? <laughs> you know? question. Um, but I was curious, you know, like, yeah. cause it's like, you know, whatever. And um, I don't remember if it was, who it was, it was probably Freddie and Hoya cause they're the sort of like ubiquitous guys in the band, but like, I remember some, one of them saying something to the effect of, yo, you guys are great because you're real. You're doing you. That's what it needs to be. And I was like, exactly. So that was what hardcore was to me. Like, it didn't matter what you stood for, like what you sounded like, what, you know, what you looked like. Are you real? If you're real, we'll give you that respect. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like something I always thought about, like, as I'm in like my bands, like just like, I think about like early SST and like none of the records really sounded the same at all, you know? And then like, it was just like Minutemen is punk. Who's Cardew is punk and Black Flag is 
you know, kind of more obviously punk. Saccharine trust. You're like, yes. what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, but it was like, they were all just punk bands and it was kind of like, so sometimes I find myself still like, people are like, what kind of music do you play? I'm like, punk. Yeah. Right. And then, then they list it on. And I'm like, this sounds more like replacements meets Goo Goo Dolls or something. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like, but it's like, the thing is like, I feel like it's like I taken it from that extension. You know, it's like, we're expressing it just the way we know, but kind of like, I, I don't want to say ethically, but you know, it's, it's almost like we still view ourselves as like punk or hardcore kids. And just from like that filter. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and we did absolutely. I mean, we maybe didn't say we were a hardcore band because we felt like in 1994, that meant something different. Yeah. But we definitely believed that we were hardcore kids. We definitely believed that hardcore was our scene. Hardcore was our family. And, you know, I know that I wouldn't exist without hardcore, like nothing about me today at all, literally would not, would exist without hardcore. I could not afford this apartment without hardcore because my boss is the singer for cause for alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and he gave me a good job (laughs) because that's what hardcore people do. We give each other jobs. (laughs) We make sure we're taken care of that. And, and, but I mean, to a certain extent, that's what the story of my life was. It really is a story of like, you know, hardcore kids taking care of me at different stages of my life (laughs) in different ways. And I've, you know, that's why I'll never stop being a hardcore kid. I'll never stop hanging out and, you know, like I'll keep going to shows and listening to the records. Like obviously not the same as when I was like 20, but you know, I'm still there. I'm still a figure. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like now it's like, I'll probably, my ears tell me like, Oh, this Wilco record sounds better than I remember. But you know, still on like a weekly basis, I feel like I'm listening to hardcore and like, it's something I can't get away from even when I like pull shirts out, you know, and, right. <laughs> uh, you know, and like, uh, just like even being like, oh, that's right, I'm straight edge, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's just who I am, you right. know, like, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you're still edge, but, you know, but it's oh, also like, no. a, but it's also like a weird thing where uh, I kind of mention it because, like it's like I don't talk to anyone about it I just am you know it's like you know I'm vegetarian and then like it's like you know those are tenants that kind of plug in and everything and you don't have to be to that but you know it's like it's just part of me you know well this is so I mean okay so I could relate this to Touche Amore (laughs) because like I one of the things about this record that also sort of um picked up it was at a time when I had first started reading a lot of Zen Buddhist stuff. And, uh, and since then I've become more of a, a practitioner um, of sorts. And I work with a, a Zen teacher and, and whatnot. But um, so Jeremy is a huge Leonard Cohen fan. Leonard Cohen is famously a Zen Buddhist. Um, he was uh, an ordained monk in the nineties and, uh, and so a lot of his ideas still sort of like, float around Buddhist ideas. And a lot of the ideas that are in this record to me are sort of like Buddhist ideas, specifically to two of the most primary sort of Buddhist ideas that there are, are uh, interconnectedness and impermanence. And to me, those two factors are sort of the basis of the entire record. 
for, for stage four. Yeah. A lot of what he's talking about is, you know, like there's a lyric where I remember he's like, no one saw this coming, you know, or um, what's that lyric in the first song that's like, um, this time is all the time we have or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very much, you know, there's a lot of temporal sort of ideas that are there um, about identity and about like time and sort of like the way time moves. In the Buddhist conception of identity, there is no fixed identity. There's no sense of self, there's no being, there's no soul. Um, there's a complex uh, sort of combination of causes and conditions that are constantly happening and constantly changing. And this is part of that idea of impermanence. You know, even who you are, there is no essential you because you are constantly changing through this variety of causes and conditions, so on and so forth. So when you think of an identity like being a straight edge or being a vegetarian, or even being in love, I've talked about this in, in terms of my relationship, where you know people will be like, wow, you've been with your partner for like 15 years, like what's your secret? And I would <laughs> be like, well, I was like, I don't know that it's a secret. Here's what I do, and that's this. Every morning I wake up and I look over and I see him and I think, I would like to no spend another day with this person. And there hasn't been a morning yet where I woke up and looked over and didn't feel that way. So my identity, it's not a fixed identity. In other words, like I'm not chained to this person forever, right? Like I can walk away at any time, right? But every morning I make that decision and then I live my life based on that decision. I feel the same way about being vegetarian. You could argue I'm a vegetarian as a label. But the reality of that label is that at any moment, I can turn around and eat a hamburger, right? Like I can make that choice at any moment. And every day I wake up and I choose to say, I'm going to eat vegetarian today. So it just happened that however many years ago, like 15 or 16 years ago, I woke up one morning and said, I'm going to have a glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> and then boom, my straight edge identity was blown to a to, <laughs> to bits, right? So was it a real identity? It's as real as any other identity. These things sort of like, they morph and change over time. And so even in, in terms of relationships, they morph and change over time. In a lot of ways, stage four is like a transition record. It's I'm relating to my mother as she existed on earth to I'm relating to the memory of my mother. Two different relationships with technically the same person. And I think that that real sense of change and transition is what, that's what I think I really actually wound up loving about this record as a whole. Yeah. Like that's what really I keep coming back to. I don't know that he saw it that way. I know that he's a huge Leonard Cohen fan, so I feel like he must have little bits of Zen in him. But I feel like there's there's something about the themes of this record that 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 go beyond just death. Because what is death if not for the greatest of life's questions, right? Like, I mean, and I can say for myself, like I've been sort of obsessed with death my entire life. You know, I think when you grow up Pentecostal. Uh, what are you told? You're told if you do this, 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 you're gonna to go to hell. Where's hell? What happens after you die? 
So all you're concerned about is I need to get right with God before I die. And I could die at any minute. Yeah. Death, 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 death. I, yeah. I told someone that, um, I told someone that it, uh, growing up, it felt like it was like, I was re- repenting like almost like every second. Cause it's like, I could die at any yes. second. <laughs> I remember I had a, I had a childhood, a very similar childhood thing where I was like, I remember one minute being like, well, every time I sin, I'm just going to apologize right after. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that and, you know, I've kept you so long already, but um, I guess like to kind of wrap it up for the sake of your life, um, you know, just like the, yeah, I mean, it kind of like made me emotional in that specific moment of you, uh, you putting it that way you did with like, Jeremy's relationship with his mother it's like Jeremy will continue to have a relationship with his mother you know it's like it has changed you know and it feels like I need to listen to more Leonard Cohen and read more Buddhism you know (laughs) Um, but I I love that I love the way you put that and you know and I you know it's like I also was thinking in the conversation I'm like if Jeremy listens to this I hope he's not like you're not talking about my record enough but I think like almost like the journey through it you know, I would, I would think that Jeremy would probably like the way that we kind of thought about it and went places with it. And that's almost like what you would want anyone to do with like any of your favorite records, you know? For sure. And I, and I, I don't think, you know, I don't know if you've heard that new Touche song, I'll Be Your Host, where it's sort of like, essentially, it, it sounds like he's basically saying like, oh, great, I just became a vessel for everyone's pain. Yeah. I didn't mean to be that. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, that's what I'll be your host means. <laughs> so like, um, also genius lyric. Totally like love that he wrote that. But, um, but that's the thing, like, you know, our conversation didn't use this record as a vessel of pain um, and didn't use him as a vessel of our pain. It was more just sort of like looking at it from, uh, you know, the perspective of relationship and the perspective of change. And I think that what is, you know, what is that record if not that? It, that record is, is, yes, you could say you can reduce it to being a death record, but really it's a record about a relationship that's going through change. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really it. Yeah. And I think, I think like the way I think about the record is exactly that. But also just like, it makes me, you were, you were saying, it's almost like thinking about things in the moment more like, um, you know, it's almost made me with like my grandmother passing and this record, they just came at the same time. It's like, uh, you know, kind of like, don't take these friendships or like my relationship with my wife for granted, you know, because like just try and like have a better relationship on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, because you don't know when they'll be gone. And yeah. yet, for some reason, that's like the hardest thing to do. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we were born to take everything for granted. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I just kind of, <laughs> my grandmother was like 72 years old. You know, I, you know, I keep bringing it to that. But it's just like, I expected, you know, a lot, a lot longer. She was a healthy 72, too. She was like a yoga instructor, you know. Right. And like, so I was like, okay, you know, well, she'll be around, you know. Uh, but, you know, until they're not, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, I think those probably maybe it's hard to say. I wanted to say those probably more finality with Jeremy. It almost seemed like a process of, you know, like someone having cancer and 
thinking about that, but you know, when they're gone, they're gone. It doesn't, you know, really matter what the transition to get to that point. And no matter how long you have, yeah, knowing it's coming, when it comes, it's still like you didn't know at all. Yeah, and I want to like it I still hits. Want to feel like in the present, like it's like I don't want to have that feeling. A lot of the feeling I had off the record. My main point is that it's kind of like, man, I wish that I like talked to this person more, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's what I took away from the record. Like I hope I get better you know, almost like reaching out to friends, you know, you know, telling your partner, you know, in the day that you care about them and not letting it just like assume, you know, um, and just kind of like being nicer to people, you know, even, you know, cause yeah. it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like my friends know I'm a nice guy, you know, but it's like, say those uncomfortable things to like have a real connection on a day-to-day basis, you know? And I think, honestly, I feel like we are all going to come out of quarantine uh different people and i think that some of those things are going to stick for many of us because i think we talk about taking things for granted i mean i didn't realize how many people and places and things i took for granted until i was forced to sit in this apartment for six months basically (laughs) um and there's a feeling that when this is over i'm gonna hug kiss love everybody that i see (laughs) you know and uh and i hope i remember this feeling you know because i i want that I, i would rather have a life like that yeah well thank you for talking to me it's been a blast it was great. Thanks. We didn't. Even, I didn't get to say uh, happy birthday to the new end original record. Ah, <laughs> but next year, twenty twenty. Yeah, we'll talk about it next. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Cool. Thank you. Are you stuck at home and need new records, but it doesn't feel safe to venture out, or you don't want to support big box stores? Go to lunchboxrecords.com for the best new releases and a whole lot more. If you live in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can do safe pickup. But if you live elsewhere in the United States, they'd be happy to ship to you. At checkout, just enter discount code SPINNINGOUT for 10% off. Come on, you love new music, so trust me, it's easy. Thanks again for listening. Once again in ultimate pleasure speaking with norman next we'll be chatting with rick mcguire of the band pile we're talking about radiohead's album kid a hey look another album from the year 2000 not sure why that keeps happening but maybe because it was 20 years ago so i guess it's time to look back so listen if you haven't heard it or re-listen maybe you'll gain a new appreciation like i did Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and our page on Spotify. Leave a review or just simply tell a friend. Lastly, thanks to Sarah Blumenthal for editing and producing the pod. Also to Pretty Maddie for the theme music. On that note, hit the theme!